2: Find a location near you at com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC. This
3: is Dennis from Full Time Finance. This is Rick McGinley. This is Brett Quinto.
1: This is Liz from Chief Mom Officer, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
4: What happens when you lose everything? To say my father's death was a shock would be an understatement. He got a headache one night, went to work the next day and never came home. Leaving my mother with three young boys, a rudimentary understanding of personal finance and thankfully a newly acquired MBA and a degree in accounting. There was one saving grace. As tragic as it was, my father's year old job by contract had bought him a $2 million personal life insurance policy as part of his employment benefits. $2 million is a lot of money today, but it was unimaginable in 1982 when he died. Of all the things my mother would have to worry about, money, it appears, wouldn't be one of them. Except, except, my father's small medical practice had suffered an oversight. They never bought the promised life insurance policy. It was an honest mistake. We got nothing, and at the time, my mother was too grief-stricken to take action. We had thought that through all the tragedy, fear, and unknown, at least money wouldn't have to be an issue. We lost a fortune that in reality, we never actually had. It was a fortune based on a promise, based on paper, based on the non-existent. A lifetime of financial security blown away by unforeseen life events. We fell out of financial independence before we even really got there. A clerical error a sudden death, a recession, a global pandemic. And speaking of protecting ourselves when life changes unexpectedly, shopping for disability insurance can be complicated, taking too much time to research and understand. At Pattern, they believe doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. This is why thousands of doctors across the U.S. trust them to help compare and understand the insurance they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, you request your quotes online. Second, you compare your options and ask questions. Third, you apply risk-free. Request your quotes today at patternlife.com partner earn and invest to be confident you have the right policy and your income is protected. You can find the link in our show notes, patternlife.com slash partner slash E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T. Liz is 39 years old with three wonderful boys and has been married to her stay-at-home husband for the past 17 years. She's an IT project manager by day and someone who writes and talks about money on the internet by night on her blog, where she is better known as the chief mom officer. Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back. My husband told me to let you know he says hello.
4: So both Liz and her husband have been on the What's Up Next podcast, the precursor to earn and invest, and it was great to have them both on and get both of their perspectives. Dennis writes his blog, Full Time Finance, to share and document various tips and tricks he has employed over the years that allow him to enjoy a more comfortable way of life than his spending indicates. While not busy managing his own finances, he spent the last decade in the corporate world streamlining company operations to save money. Dennis, great to see you again. Thanks for having us on. It's great to see you again as well. In this world where everyone is adjusting to working at home, it sounds like you've been doing that for a while already.
3: Oh yeah, we're on three years of working from home when I'm not traveling for my job. I travel about 50% and the other 50% I'm at home.
4: Brett Ginto is an endocrinologist out of California, a devoted husband and father, and financial independence enthusiast. He joined Paul and I for our first ever listener takeover episode last year. Brett, it's good to have you back.
2: Hello, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me.
4: That was a great episode we all did together. It was the first episode where we took people from our Facebook group and opened it up and just asked the first few people who responded to our Facebook post to be on the show. We've done several since then and have had a lot of fun doing them. So thank you for being on that first one. Rick McGinley is a father of two amazing kids and two goofy dogs. He grew up in a military family traveling the country, including all 50 states. He is a huge financial independence enthusiast and hopes to take his love of hiking and craft beer on the road in a few years with a slow travel lifestyle. Slow travel, Rick. That's not so popular right now.
0: No, I, I hope the car. Co- The whole pandemic is over. It does go to show you that the world has changed. The world's different. And my plans around financial independence have probably changed a little bit as well. But slow travel is going to be
4: there. I just interviewed a group of women who blog at Our Freedom Years, and we're slow traveling through Italy, and we're planning to go to Hungary, and we're quarantined, and now have been in Italy for the last few months, holed up in an apartment complex, so... They, as you, had this dream of slow travel and still have that dream. But this pandemic has thrown a wrench in a lot of people's plans. Yeah, and
0: I hope a lot of these people that do have been doing slow travel for a number of years post about it. I want to read about the stories, especially around the healthcare system, in some of the areas I'm considering. That will be a big
4: factor for sure. So Liz, in my introduction, I asked what happens when you lose it all? And indeed, today, we're going to talk about falling out of financial independence. But before we do, I guess one of the first questions is how do you define financial independence? There are a few definitions going around out there, and I think people have different ideas of what it is.
1: So for myself, I always consider financial independence to be synonymous with financial security. So the ability to live off of what you've saved and earned and invest, and to not be worried about the next recession or pandemic or an inability to pay your bills because of a job interruption. So to me, that's the the ultimate goal of financial independence.
4: Dennis, I love how Liz said financial security. I noticed that she didn't say 25 times. She didn't say (laughs) a safe withdrawal rate of 4%. Is that pretty fitting with your own opinions?
3: I actually defined it in two different ways. So I've got a base way, which is exactly what Liz is describing, which is the concept of, you know, I lose my job for the next 10, 15 years. I'm good to go. You know, okay, we survive everything else. And then there's another level that is enabling you just to kind of completely walk away from your job and not even consider what happens next. And that's a whole nother level. And that's when you start talking about the 25x or the 4%.
4: Rick, it hits me that there's a problem if you're defining financial independence as a specific number, whether that be 25 times or a lot of us like to talk about the 4% rule, which means you could withdraw 4% of your portfolio every year and that could last you fully into retirement and further. If you define it on a number, the problem is our numbers change and often those numbers change because of things out of our control. Tell me, at the beginning of the year in January, did you consider yourself, where were you on the path to financial independence and has that changed since our recession has dropped?
0: To begin the year, I would consider I was what some people call lean, financially independent, able to support my basic living expenses, have some sort of minimal luxuries like a a car travel trip. It would not include traveling abroad at all. Somewhere between there and full financial independence. The stock market having dropped 25, 30%, has it put a dent in my net worth? Yes. Has it changed my plans? No. I'm still three to five years out. And so, you know, barring in a very extended bear market, I don't really see that much of a change.
4: That's interesting. So, you're not worried that it might take you seven or 10 years now. Your thought process and your planning covered such incidences as what's going on at the moment?
0: I think it will definitely test the flexibility. I mean, J.L. Collins, I think, has a saying that I think is really appropriate right now. He says flexibility really is the only asset. And then staying flexible both in my planning, in the accumulation, and a drawdown strategy is going to be key. Does it mean I move from three to five years to five to seven years? Maybe, but we'll see. Time will tell.
4: Brett, Rick is talking about flexibility being the only asset, but clearly, we have multiple asset classes that make up our wealth. For some, that's stocks and bonds. For others, it's real estate. How do you feel right now about the 4% rule? Has being in the middle of a big recession and this global pandemic, it's changed our financial markets? Are you feeling less certain about the intelligence of the 4% rule? You know, this is
2: my first am I'm, a, I'm a pretty new to investing. I only invest, started investing in 2015. And so this is my first time in a, in a bear market or a tipping point of a recession. So I kind of think to myself, well, what did I do in 2008? You know, I was like, what did you do the last time? Well, what did I do last time? I didn't even know it happened. I was uh, in the middle of, of medical school and, and I had no idea that it even happened. And then and we recovered. So, uh, so I only got on the, the, the boat in uh, 2015. So. So what I do now is I, I'm kind of put myself in the same shoes. What would I have done 10 years ago, 12 years ago? It's probably probably more of the same. Do, probably don't do anything. No further recovery.
4: Liz, you probably remember back to 2008. Were you as interested in finances back then? And how did it feel compared to now?
1: Yes, yeah, so actually, I've been an investor since before the dot bomb not uh, a tremendous amount, but so I've been through three, three recessions. Definitely 2008 was very different than this, right? So 2008 was primarily a banking crisis at first and then spread to real estate. And so there were several very impacted industries. I have friends that lost their homes. My husband lost his job where he worked closed down. It wasn't able to find a job for years. So there's some similarities with the job market, but it certainly wasn't anything like this, a forced shutdown of not just a huge segment of the United States business, but business around the world and travel and tourism and certain industries basically just going dark overnight with no real knowledge yet of when or how they'll be able to reopen. So in some ways, the financial market itself is a bit similar, but this one also dropped much faster as well. Hasn't dropped as much yet.
4: Dennis, I was calling this a Black Swan event the other day, and someone corrected me. They said, well, Nassim Taleb defined Black Swan events as ones that were unknowable. And in fact, we couldn't have planned for them. And a lot of people are saying that pandemics are something that we've been expecting and watching for years From your understanding, and forget what Taleb's definitions are, do you think this is a black swan event in our lifetime right now?
3: In the context of we've had a lot of black swan events, yes. So we've had pandemics before. If you look at the 1917-18, it's commonly quoted, the more people died there. But there was also issues with polio in the 50s. There was a large flu pandemic back in the late 60s. All these things you know happened and had similar impacts. and if you look at the studies, what happened to stocks in those cases, it wasn't as drastic as it is today. Now, whether this will be or not, it's hard to say that's kind of the unique part to what Liz is talking about is the uncertainty around the piece beyond the finance. There's so much uncertainty on when this will kind of stabilize. From a being able to go outside, and then we can get to the point of where we were in 2008, where we can figure out how the finances work.
4: Brett, you're a doc. Was this foreseeable?
2: I didn't foresee it. <laughs> I had no idea. But you know, we we heard inklings about it even back in early January that that this was coming around. You know, obviously there's a, a cognitive bias and disconnection from you know what you think of as uh, somebody else or happening to somebody else in, around the globe, and you don't think oh, this is going to be coming my way, or it's going to affect me and my life in any way, shape, or form. But uh, lo and behold, a lot of things change in in just four to eight weeks, and your life is greatly
3: impacted. One thing I wanted to add to that, as we were progressing through this thing, I travel all over the world and have all these sites that I deal with, and our China site shut down for the virus. While I know all these pandemics exist over the history, it never occurred to me that it would become this here. So there's a big difference between understanding what was going on in China, even, and knowing what was happening in the U.S. or what would happen.
4: Rick, discuss what Dennis is talking about right here. We think about these things happening elsewhere, and especially when we're planning our finances for the future, we try to take into account all sorts of bad things that can happen. Did anything like a pandemic ever cross your mind? Is this a black swan event?
0: I don't think the pandemic itself is a black swan event, because we've had them, as Brett described, or Dennis described, excuse me, including also SARS, MERS, Ebola, things of that nature. Was it bound to happen? Maybe. Maybe that doesn't make the black swan event. But what I think does was the complete and utter government shutdown of our economy. I don't think anybody could have seen that. If somebody had said, hey, a flu of some sort is going to spread like wildfire, I wouldn't have said my top 5 thoughts would have been complete government shutdown of our economy. That I think was the the bigger shock to me.
4: Liz, a lot of people were saying, "Hey, it's about time for a recession anyway. We have had a peak market for 10 years." I've still seen some people argue that this was the normal course. Yes, we didn't expect a pandemic and shutdown, but a big recession was on its way and just like any other big recession, it will clear with time how do you feel about that?
1: So generally, I agree that we're about due for a recession and almost, I think pretty much all the time, when a recession hits and the market goes down significantly, it's as a result of something that people didn't foresee and didn't bake into the financial projections of how these companies were going to do, right, and how the economy was going to do. And so when something suddenly happens, goes down, and there's a difficult time for a while. Will things eventually come back? Yes, I think so. It's come back after literally every event in modern history, whether it's World War I or the Great Depression or 2008, eventually it comes back. The question is, how long will it take, right? In the dot bomb, I believe 10 years after, the market was pretty much where it was 10 years before. And in the Great Depression, it took 25 years to return to the level that it was when it started. It was a very long amount of time for an investor. Just to clarify, that's comparing the market value at the start to that many years later. If you kept buying all the way down, you did make your money back much quicker, which is why a lot of people really emphasize dollar cost averaging as a key part of making it through these volatile financial markets and continuing to purchase larger amount of shares for your investments.
4: What you're talking about right now really makes me think about how we define recessions. And just off the top of my head, I'm thinking that there are two key components, right? How deep and how wide. In other words, how far are we gonna go down and how many years is this gonna last? So let me run through the panel here to make you guys feel uncomfortable. I'm gonna ask you to look in your crystal balls, starting with you, Dennis, how deep is this gonna go? How far <laughs> do you think the stock market is gonna drop? And how long do you think it's gonna last? And I'm gonna you know, say at the beginning, I know this is conjecture, no one knows really what's going to happen with the market, but give me your best outlook.
3: Wild guess. And it is a wild guess. I'd expect at least another 20 or 30% off the top of a stock market. And I'd say we're probably looking at six to seven more months of uh, pain at least until the virus is out of the way. And then maybe another six to nine months after that, until we've recovered fully stock market and system-wise. So about two years just kind of lines up with what history is mostly said for moderate size recessions.
4: All right. So Rick, Dennis is going with a moderate size recession. How deep and how wide?
0: Really a little less deep than Dennis described. I'm thinking you always get a, a larger shock after the first shock. So if we fell 30, 35%, I could see us hitting 40 to 45% from the previous high. I'm not saying from here, from our previous high. Then I'm thinking about when will investors feel confidence to buy back in? They're going to have that confidence, I think, when companies start to put out better earnings numbers. That may be real earnings numbers or comparative earnings numbers. So what we're about to go through the next three to six months are lower numbers, and they're going to lower those projections. CEOs and CFOs are going to pile in every excuse of an expense because they can. They can make the numbers look really bad and get away with it. Comparatively, that makes Q1, Q2 of next year fairly strong. And I think that's going to get people the confidence to buy back in. I'm not saying the market will return to the previous high by Q1, Q2. I think the money flows will come back in. And that's when we'll start to see the recovery.
4: Brett, compared to Dennis and Rick, are you bullish or bearish? I am
2: bullish, I guess. I guess that's an optimist in me. But... I think playing, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, averages, maybe, you know, 30 to 40% drop from the top and, and maybe on average a three-year, three-year cycle for this. So hopefully for recovery. So I'm just playing averages here.
4: And Liz, I didn't get your overall hypothesis, how far and how long this would go. Any ideas?
1: It's really hard to project because so much of it depends on when can we go back closer to how things were before. And the economy can get back into the place closer to where it was before all this, which really depends on when, essentially, the worry about the virus is nearly nothing, right? Some kind of vaccine or some other approach, a treatment, something like that. From the estimates I've seen, we've shut down, pretty much shut off about a third of the economy right now that's right now. So in the longer this goes on, the deeper that's going to go. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see another easily 30% drop from here. And I mean, the market's been going up lately for some weird reason, which is why I never time the market because it always does crazy stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if this lasts for more than two years, just because it's been so deep and so many people have been impacted so much. I think that it's just going to be a while before folks can get back on their feet after this.
4: Rick, what Liz was talking about almost seems obvious, but I don't think it is. This idea that the economy and the race to cure, isolate, and treat COVID are intimately tied together. Is there any scenario in which the economy gets better, stays stronger, and yet we don't have a good handle on how to manage COVID?
0: Yeah, the government can continue to pump money into the economy, right? We've heard them say that they've opened the unlimited tap of funds, and that does have a buoying effect, and maybe even to the point where capital becomes so cheap that investors race to it as a better option than anything else out there, and that by itself could buoy the market.
4: Brett, I just read an article that says Spain is going to start a universal basic income. And I think that sounds a little bit about what Rick is talking about. Maybe we don't give a check to each person every month, but in a sense, the government pushing a lot of cash into the system would have a similar effect. Do you think the U.S. could ever have that type of scenario where all American citizens were getting a monthly stipend?
2: I think that's something that you would, you would definitely consider if the, the duration were to continue on for months on end. So, you know, when you they, they sign that $2 trillion stimulus package and people are going to get checks from that, but what happens after that runs out? And if, if the you know, crisis were to continue on longer, then would you get a, a second bolus or a third bolus? And essentially, if you did this over time, multiple times, would this effectively become almost a, a UBI system?
4: Yeah, I know it's something people are definitely talking about.
1: Yeah, and I just something that concerns me with the discussion of basically printing nearly unlimited money is the specter of something that we haven't seen a lot of in modern times, and that's inflation, right? It's the delicate balance because we can't just print unlimited money and send unlimited money to people with no monetary consequences. If you do too much of that, you can get inflation, and if you get the balance wrong, too, you, you can get deflation.
3: Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, the value of our money is tied to what we produce. So if we're not producing anything, eventually there's more money than there's production and we're going to run into problems. There's going to be inflation at some point. We have a deflationary push right now because everybody is, you know, not out there spending. But what happens when this clears, the money's still out there.
4: Yeah, people forget when my father died was in the 80s and my mom started investing at that time. And I think bonds were paying something like 15%. What people don't realize is the inflationary rate was up right about 15% too. So it really changes things and inflation can really cause a disaster as well as runaway deflation. So we're really looking at a tight balance.
1: Yep. I know my parents often uh, told me about their first mortgage in the 80s, that they were really happy to get a 13% rate on said mortgage. And I think if you said that to most people right now, they'd fall over. We're, we're spoiled with our 4% mortgage rates.
4: Liz, my first mortgage was 8%, and I thought I was lucky at the time. So <laughs> Mine
1: was 8.375. I'm right there with you. Dennis,
4: the idea for this conversation started with you. You wrote a post called Falling Out of Financial Independence. Tell me a little bit about that post and also how did people react to it?
3: So when I started, well, last year at this time, it was about 27X expenses. So in theory, you know, I was at a point where I could just walk away if I wanted to. I have no intention to, but it's something that always had the back of my mind is that financial security, et cetera. I could choose what I want to do. I'm in a very political position. If somebody decided they didn't like me and they wanted to kick me out the door, whatever. And I noticed as after we this thing, I'm down to you know 20x, and looking around the fire community, the uh, financial independence retire early community, and I'm seeing people retire where they're saying, well, I have 25x, or even I have 20, or even 15x, and I'm seeing that, and it really greatly concerns me when I think about this because I'm looking at you know how quickly I went from 27 to 20. If that really defined being able to just walk away and forget everything, then I could have said that three years ago when I was at 20 at that point, what would be the difference? There wouldn't be. So there's obviously some aspect of you can't just 100% trust that you've hit a number and you're good to go.
4: What Dennis is talking about is this idea that 25 times spending is financial dependent. So when he says 25X, he means 25 times spending. Rick, Dennis's noticing that his financial independence plans varied based on the market really makes us look at this fact that a lot of our wealth is paper wealth. It goes up and down with the market. It can go up and down with real estate prices. Do you think there are a lot of people who thought they were financially independent and are quickly realizing that they're not nearly as safe a position as they thought?
0: There definitely are some in the community, right? As Dennis pointed out, 15 times, 20 times, there's terms out there, lean fi, barista fi, all kinds of terminology out there to try to describe how low a multiple you could have and feel comfortable to retire. I think the majority of people financially independent, whether they know the term or not, are much more conservative on when they pull the plug. They may be 30 times, 35 times. So if this comes along, it brings them down worst case scenario to 25 to 27 times. I think the average person is more conservative. They're just not vocal about it.
4: Brett, we tend to see that there is a percentage of our financial independence community who really buys into this idea of lean fire of having maybe 20 times expenses and figuring that returns from the market will carry them eventually to 25 times. Do you think there are many in our community who misjudged? No, I don't
2: think they misjudged. I think FI or financial independence or or as uh, some bloggers call it a financial improvement, it gives you the options and and lets you operate from a position of strength. So I think that pulling the plug quote unquote, or, or transitioning early to a different income source, I think that's that's the power of FI. So if you're at 20X and you decide that your position, what you're doing for income right now doesn't suit you, and you want to pull the plug and go somewhere else and do something else, that gives you that power to, to do that and, and try to explore. And by doing so, and if, if you're still generating income, well, I think that you'll probably end up hitting 25X, probably, probably uh, not not too hard.
4: Liz, we like to say cash is king. We always talk about our emergency funds, but if you are one of those people, especially who is not planning on working in the near future, how important is having a decent amount of cash reserves?
1: Oh, it's extremely important. And I think this really shows why. So I know that there's a subsection of the community that has advocated for things like not having an emergency fund or having an emergency fund in stocks or relying on your ability to generate income as essentially your emergency fund. And I I think this situation, unfortunately, shows why some of those strategies are rather risky. This is not a time when you can probably just go out and get any job that you'd like. A lot of companies are freezing hiring. A lot of companies that might have been open before where you could get a part-time job are closed. And some side hustles that used to generate a decent amount of income aren't available anymore. On top of that, if your emergency fund was in any kind of investment vehicle like stocks, now your emergency fund has gone down just at the time that you need the money. So I prefer to lean toward the advice that if you're going to actually retire early, you should have a couple of years in cash or cash equivalent type of securities.
3: If I look back at 2008, a lot of people had home equity line of credit as their emergency fund at about mid-crash, some of these banks pulled the credit, and then people ended up basically losing their houses because they didn't have that emergency fund. So, you know, you really need that cash cushion somewhere to be able to back yourself up.
1: Yeah, I agree. I had actually put a poll on Twitter the other day about emergency funds and emergency plans, because a lot of folks really have a tiered emergency plan type of idea. And someone suggested a HELOC <laughs> I said exactly the same thing. In 2008, the banks yanked the HELOCs right out from under you right when you needed them. So I would not personally rely on someone extending credit to me as a emergency fund.
4: In the first half of the show, Liz, Brett, Rick, and Dennis talk about falling out of financial independence. After the break, we discuss whether the J-O-B is actually a four-letter word. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Shopping for disability insurance is complicated enough. Wondering if you are getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. At Pattern, they simplify disability insurance for busy doctors so they can feel confident that they have the right policy and that their income is protected. Getting coverage while you are still in training could save you thousands over your career, so don't miss out on these training program discounts for residents and fellows. Get started today by requesting free quotes at patternlife.com slash partner slash earn and invest and be confident you have the right policy at the best price. You can find the link in our show notes, patternlife.com slash partner slash E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T. Rick, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it written in the financial independence retire early community that, hey, you know, if my net worth goes down, I'll just go and become a Walmart greeter or something like that. (laughs) The funny thing, and we're laughing at this right now, right? Because that would be impossible. Have we been short sighted? I mean, most people don't realize that maybe their ability or opportunity to make money may be severely constricted in exactly this type of situation.
0: Yes, but I'm concerned this is such a rare event that if we try to build into our financial plan for this, we're going to forego a lot of opportunity, investment opportunity. And so while I think it's important, I think what Liz mentioned is really the key is to have those two or three years of cash where, of course, the idea would be I could go back to work. And in most cases, you might be able to. In this case, you're not. So, what's plan B? Plan B is that two to three years of cash. And if you can ride that out, if we don't have jobs available in two or three years, we might have bigger problems.
4: Brett, as we talk about plan Bs, I also start to think about our friends who really wanted to rely on geo arbitrage. This idea that you could slow travel or at least travel to other countries and spend a lot less money. It's a little bit more difficult now. Were we being a little naive with geo arbitrage? I think that geographic arbitrage has been
2: a great thing that um, everyone likes to talk about. But and again, this is a very rare situation where where no one could have predicted that that borders would be closed and you couldn't move around freely to do to accomplish geographic arbitrage, or the place that you thought was a safe haven, no matter how much you researched it. You know, oh, it's got a great healthcare system and the uh, low cost of living, but no one would have suspected that this country that you've chosen may be the epicenter of a, of a pandemic. So how could, you know, how could anyone have known? But, you know, we, we can't plan around those those types of events, like you're like you saying, like Rick was saying. But I, I know that, for instance, you know, Christy and Christy Shen and Bryce, you know, they they are famous for being geographic arbitragers and, and traveling the gro- globe. You know, they had to return from a trip recently to, to Canada and but but even intra intra their country in Canada, they're finding great deals, you know, finding low priced Airbnbs just because they have the option to do it and there's there's not a lot of travel. So the same situation that closed and they couldn't live where they were, but when they're able to come back to home, they, they find all these great deals because
3: uh, you know, there's not a lot of travel going on. So so there's things you can pick up. There was a great post on Route to Retire, one of the bloggers in our community's post. He recently moved to Panama as part of his retirement. And he was talking about when this whole pandemic came in, basically the State Department told him, you either come back now or we don't know when you can come back. And, you know, there's that whole uncertainty of what happens to you if you're there? What does that country do in response to the pandemic? And what do they do to the expats, things like that? And can you make it home if things go different than you expect? So there's an aspect of it's a great plan, but in certain situations, maybe it's not the best
4: thing. Liz, as I try to summarize some of what we've been talking about here, and I listened to Brett talk about Bryce and Christy from Millennial Revolution, the fact that they were traveling the world and had to return to Canada and yet still were able to find ways to save money and maybe even travel within Canada. It really brings me back to this basic question. We tend to define financial independence by our net worth, but in some ways it almost sounds like it's more of a mindset issue, that the dollars and cents can change, that our net worth can change based on where we are in the economy, but those who succeed seem to understand the mindset. Am I looking at things correctly?
1: I think so. I think it goes back to what Rick mentioned earlier about flexibility, right? So, unexpected things will always happen to us and it's really about how we react to them and in that case you can react by coming back to the country that you were from but saving money in a different way and I think that's really key is just not getting locked into one dollar amount is what you have to achieve one plan and one path is the way you have to go. You have to be flexible and open to more options because you just don't know going you're going to encounter in your life. And if you're not flexible, then you might just fall down with no way to get back up. The way to keep going is to flex around that.
3: And to that end, I see so many bloggers and other commenters always measuring their net worth. How am I doing on my net worth improvement? And this year really shows that measurement is not really of value because am I doing better this year than last year just because the stock market collapsed? I'm still saving the same amount, but you look, if you use that as your guidepost, it doesn't help you to determine if you're going the right direction or not. So you need something other to judge.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why for me, net worth is only a small part of what I look at. I look at how much am I saving toward my goals? I look at my, different goals that are invested in different things and how am I tracking to those on the timeline that I want them to. So to me, it's a lot more holistic of a picture you have to have about your financial situation than just your end dollar amount net worth.
4: Rick, it sounds to me like if we're really looking at how to define financial independence, net worth is a very small part of it. But it seems like there is a basic skill set that can help us even in these times of a recession and pandemic. And one of those you mentioned is flexibility. It sounds like there's some other ones too, right? Frugality definitely is part of that skill set. What else do you see is important to build your financial independence resilience? So uh, continuous learning,
0: I would say is probably a best fit for what you asked. The uh, fact that you are able to go on to blogs like earn and invest and pull down tremendous amount of information for free. Anytime, anywhere in the world is a tremendous resource to somebody, whether they're facing financial insecurity or trying to better define financial security. And I look at some of, I've been doing this for four or five years, and I look at some of the financial independence bloggers and what I would call thought leaders, and I think of them really like a a board of directors would be. You want a varied group of people with varied experiences, age, diversity, part of the country, background, income levels. And you want to take all that information and aggregate it together. I've said this in the Earn Invest blog, and I'll say it probably 100 times more. I don't think I've had an original financial independence thought, but I'm a great aggregator. I don't see JL Collins or Paula way as Rick's way. I see all of that, little pieces of that as coming together. I'm the decision maker. They're the thought leaders. And I think just that ability to have continuous learning is going to benefit somebody tremendously. Again, whether they're just seeking to get off the ground or whether they're just seeking to leave work.
4: Brett, one thing we saw is that the financial independence community really grew and took off after the economic downturn of 2008. Are you expecting the same thing to happen here? Do you think the number of voices out there will increase, that the community will increase, or do you think it'll contract?
2: Yeah, it's, this is like the question that sort of spawned me to ask the provocative question in in the Facebook group I was wondering I was wondering what is everyone thinking is is this really the end of the fi the fire movement but that's not what history has shown us you know so even twelve years ago the the history has shown us that in two thousand eight two thousand and nine post the financial crisis that the movement got bigger and bigger and and this is where we are today where there's quote unquote movement you know and there's it's a big popular movement even though obviously has its beginnings before that, but it really has, uh, has had a big swelling. And I think obviously social media has a role to play in that swelling, but I was worried that, that you might see, uh, you know, who, you know, they're saying who who's really standing when, when all the equities go down and everybody's net worth goes down. you know, who's really going to stick with it, stick with the plan, stick with the program, or who's going to jump ship, you know, uh, get weak in the knees and jump ship. But, you know, it's it's not their fault, right? Because even some of the people that we look look towards, the people who are older and, and wiser, and the and board of directors, in their own histories, you know, they've they've come across these down markets and they've they've sold and they've done they've done dumb stuff. But that's great because that helps us learn, like you're saying, and what, what to do and what not to do. So we're getting a lot of the wisdom of what to how, to how to weather the storm right now. But yeah, it's it seems in the last week or two weeks or several weeks since I posed that question. I've been hearing an, an overwhelming response from, from the leaders in the community and, and other and other participants that, that no, this is uh, not the end and uh, the growth will continue because this path really has made us stronger financially, but also in our mindsets. It gives us that flexibility and that FI mindset to, to weather the storm. And the community itself makes us stronger. And I, I just wanted to say that too, that the community gives us strength in these times to, to educate us and give us comfort to get us through the storm.
4: Dennis, I just noticed and realized when I was looking at our group of panelists here that we are all still currently working. We are all still making money. As of the beginning of 2020, there was already really a push against retirement early, right? So a lot of people consider themselves part of what we call the FIRE or Financial Independence Retire Early community, but have zero interest in retiring Could this be some of the final nails in the retirement early coffin? In a sense, this economic downturn and pandemic, will it make people less likely to want to retire early?
3: I think it's going to have a mixed reaction. I think in the short term, it might decrease a little bit because people are focused on other things like the pandemic, like getting their families back together, getting kids back in school, things like that. But I think over time, you're going to see this push around the world to plan better for these type of events because so many people are going to be taken surprise and once they start planning they'll start to see what's possible and you'll see growth in the community me personally i'm not looking to retire early i actually love my job but at the same time i keep that eye as i said before always on being prepared so if you know things don't go my way you've got that security to walk away and that's kind of where it starts
4: Rick, what do you think the overall fallout of this economic recession will be for the financial independence community? Do you think people will become more conservative?
0: Yes. Emergency fund-wise, I think we'll see more people with larger and larger emergency funds. Six months, 12 months, 18 months will become a little more common. I think there will be less negativity around that sort of strategy. It'll be fresh in everybody's minds. I think first and foremost, we all should look for the community to grow. You know, as Dennis was describing, this is going to push a lot of people to ask the very basic question that led millions of people to Mr. Money Mustache. How can I quit my job? How can I be more financially secure? Any way that you phrase that led you to a couple of early financial independence pioneers. And those same questions are going to be asked over and over and over again throughout the rest of 2020. And that's going to lead more people into our fold, more people into the journey. And provide an opportunity for us to hear about their journey, hear their voices. And from that, I think we're all going to grow.
4: Brett, one of the things my wife and I have both learned from these events over the last month is, even though sometimes we hate to admit it, we are both thankful that we have jobs that we can tolerate, that give us health insurance, that provide a monthly paycheck. In a lot of ways, I really don't worry about my investments nearly as much nor my short-term financial situation because i know that paycheck is coming in every month. Tell me a little bit about what you think you've learned about yourself from going through the last few months.
2: Yeah, the in just the last couple of weeks. I mean, you know, my mind is always thinking, oh, when is the transition point? You know, when is enough enough and and when do i have enough strength to transition to something else? And so my mind is always actively thinking about those questions. But during this crisis, those thoughts have kind of quieted and a new feeling of gratitude has come to me, just like you were saying. And that gratitude comes from having a somewhat secure income right now and being able to take advantage of the human capital, of uh, being able to have a, a regular steady income and having a job. When people are, so many people are losing their jobs around the country, around the world, it's, it's very comforting to know that a lot of our basic necessities are met that we have a strong uh, financial ship under our feet, and that we have have our health. And uh, obviously the most important things are are taken care of right now. So a lot of gratitude for that, yeah.
4: Liz, tell us about Chief Dad Officer. How has this been for him as a stay-at-home dad? Is it different, you think, for him than
1: you? Oh, certainly. So his days are mostly spent now with taking care of the boys who are now all home from school right? And the older kids, so my boys are 16, 12, and four. So the older kids are now doing schooling from home while I work from home. So I'm working up here in my bedroom slash office, and they're working on their computers downstairs and in their rooms. So it certainly has been obviously very different for him than me because I primarily just stopped traveling for work, kind of like I'm sure Dennis did, and basically just started working from home all the time.
4: Dennis, tell us about that. Do you think the nature of work has changed even when we can go back to traveling and gathering groups? I guess a big question is, will we?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of this will trigger a lot more work from home. I was already seeing some trends in some of our offices where they were setting offices up as more uh, places where people come in a little bit, a few times a month and visit, and it's not necessarily they're there every day. And I think this will open the eyes to the rest of the world that that's a possibility. And there will be a shift more. There's certain people that can't do it. I mean, it's awfully hard for me to do it. I have a seven, a five, and a two-year-old. I do it all did all the time before, but now that my kids are home, it's harder at this point. But there's a lot of people don't have that, and when my kids go back, I won't have that. And then it goes back to relatively stable and easy to do, and in some ways more productive than at work.
4: Rick, as we finish off this conversation, I start to think about how privileged I feel to be debating these issues of financial independence when I know there are a lot of people out there who are struggling just to make it every day and have enough money to go buy food. I feel like there are a lot of lessons that we've learned from what's happening now but one of them is this idea that by pursuing financial independence, by thinking about our personal finances, we may not be able to retire early. We might not even be able to live our dreams, but we're probably much better prepared for whatever rocky road comes ahead. Have you had any of those feelings of thankfulness as it seems like the world is crumbling around us?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll share with the group. You know, I still have my job. I still have the health insurance, like you mentioned and Brett mentioned. My company did come out last week and said, look, we're cutting, hey, 10% across the board. And that's going to be for the remainder of 2020. You know, and I have seven, eight years ago, my reaction would have been very different. It would have been, oh, my God, what am I going to do? My reaction this time was, damn, that sucks. And that was it. It took a second. But that was the entirety of the feeling. And so you're right, it's a very privileged feeling. But I think it comes from a lot of effort put in the last seven, eight years to be in the situation, to have low expenses, and to be able to cut back and where a 10% hit is nothing more than an oh damn moment. It still hurts, don't get me wrong, but it's much worse than oh my God.
3: So if I look back to 2008, my company actually cut pay by 10% at that point. That was much earlier in my career and much not in anywhere near the shape I am now. My reaction at that point was to start looking for side hustles, like being a financial advisor and things like that. I cut out my 401k contributions down to the bone, you know, et cetera, because it was really rough. And I look at now being in that better financial situation, my company has not yet decided what they're going to do. They're waiting another week or two to denounce it. But if it's a 10% pay cut, I'll deal. You know, I'm in a situation where I'm prepared to manage that situation at this point. It's much less of a stress burden
1: Yep. And I can add to that. So when I think back to 2008, when my husband's factory closed down, right, and we suddenly lost his income for a couple of years at that point, I mean, that was tremendously impactful. And nowadays, if I look at right now, we're at a place where we have no debt. I have no mortgage, no nothing. could cut my salary in half and I would be fine. If anyone that knows me is listening, please don't cut my salary in half. But (laughs) if I had to, it'd be fine. I could live on that. It's not not a problem. And that's not a position I was in in 2008. But 2008 was a big catalyst to getting here. So I think to the earlier point that we were discussing, this event and how deep it's going to cut and how many people it's going to impact will... Probably be the catalyst for another generation coming to a strong desire for financial stability.
0: Yeah, to Liz's point, uh, the idea of second generation fire, our kids following in our footsteps, I think this is a tremendous opportunity to talk to them about what's really going on. You know, for me to tell my kids a year ago, prepare for a job loss, prepare for a pay cut, you know what they would have said? Yeah, sure, Dad, that doesn't happen. Well, it does happen. It's happening right now. And it's happening to our family. It's happening to our income. And I can tell you about that impact. Take the opportunity for us to pass that downstream to the kids, especially older kids. It's pretty important right now.
4: To summarize, you know, I've lived through 2002.com bust. I've lived through 2008 and the real estate market. And now we are all living through this together. The truth of the matter is there's a lot of uncertainty and we do not know what will happen with the market. We do not know what will happen with our jobs. But I think as a group, we all feel like our preparation is better than if we had not discovered financial independence. And certainly, Even if we can't retire when we want to, the likelihood is that we'll be able to put food on our table and we'll find a way to thrive again. I wanted to thank you all for coming on and give you each a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where we can find you on the internet. Let's start with you, Brett. What's up next with your life?
2: I am going to continue to go into work and be grateful for it and volunteering this weekend to help screen patients for COVID-19 at the screening tent in front of the hospital and praying that they'll be okay and so will all all of us.
4: We are going to pray that you will be safe as well as everyone else too. Is there a place we can find you on the internet?
2: I am on the Facebook groups, on the Earn Invest Facebook group. I'm a member there. You can uh, reach out to me over there if you need to, but no formal website or, you know, handle.
4: And Rick, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Uh, I can be found on Facebook. I do post under.
0: My name, Rick McGinley, can be found pretty frequently. If you haven't seen me post in the last five minutes, wait another five minutes. You'll probably see me post. <laughs> I have to be one of the more prolific posters out there. I won't say the, that my posts are always the best, but definitely the volume is out there. As for what's up next, i um, very much just excited to get life back to normal as it seems that we may be flattening the curve. That might be a little bit of getting ahead of it, but I'm very excited. I'm very hopeful that as a community that we'll continue to come through and support our small businesses as things turn around. So you'll find me around the Atlanta trails or around the, around the Atlanta breweries, but other than that, just excited for life to get back to normal.
4: And Rick and Brett, I want to thank you both for being part of the Earn and Invest Facebook group. It is an active group. There are all sorts of great discussions going on there. You can find us at Facebook under Earn and Invest. Dennis, tell us what's new with full-time finance, what's happening with you, and where can we find you?
3: Okay, so full-time finance, we continue to uh, post articles once a week, kind of updating on how corporate world is going and helping career, especially now in our current COVID situation, getting back in your career, developing back. And you know, outside of personal, we have a foster girl, so we're heavily involved in the foster children and also in the community. And it's just making sure those organizations keep operating, especially in light of this current situation, because it's much harder for those organizations to operate in the situation.
4: And Liz, besides working from home, what's up next with you and where can we find you?
1: Well, I was planning to go get a haircut, but instead I'm going to be planning to stay at home. and. Take care of the boys and sew masks in the evenings and weekends to donate to some of our local healthcare facilities we have here that are looking for those. So that's what's up next with me. And if you want to find me, I'm at chiefmomofficer.org or very frequently on Twitter at Liz Officer.
4: This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Rick McGinley, Brett Ginto, Dennis from Full-Time Finance, and Liz, the Chief Mom Officer. That's a wrap. So I want to talk a little bit about last week's episode with Tanya Hester, titled Fighting Injustice as a Non-Person of Color. First and foremost, this is a really difficult topic to take on on a podcast for so many reasons. And I don't want to say that because it's difficult, it means that we shouldn't do it. Because... No matter how difficult the topic is for us non-people of color, I can't even imagine how difficult it is to navigate and negotiate our current society being a person of color. So saying that it's difficult in no way excuses the fact that we need to have these kind of conversations. On the other hand, on the other hand... When we as content creators, content producers, bloggers, podcasters, get out there and talk about these things, we put ourselves up front and center and often are at risk of saying the wrong thing. We might say something that makes no sense. We might say something, God forbid, that's offensive. We may not truly bring these issues to light the way we need to discuss them. And that is scary and difficult. And we've seen this over and over again in our small community, as well as out in the world, that a content creator tweets something or says something or says something in a podcast and it gets them in trouble. And we find that they're at risk at losing their platform, maybe losing their way of earning a living. And our derided and decried by the very community that was embracing them. That's why talking about these things is so difficult, because a lot of times we're not talking about what I think of as explicit racism or sexism or bias. That's where someone clearly wants to do wrong by one other group of people by taking actions against them. But often, what we're really facing is implicit racism, sexism, and bias. And what that usually means when we say it's implicit is often those of us who are committing these so-called forms of biases and racism and sexism have no idea that we're doing it. Or if we do know we're doing it, we don't realize its impact It's implicit to us, our society, how we grew up and the people we surround ourselves with. And thus, I'm not questioning that we should be called out for these implicit errors of thought and judgment. But in the process of calling out... Do we become vilified because we're out there being content producers, we're bloggers and podcasters, and we're giving our opinions and we're putting our opinion up there on the stage? for everyone to see. And I've had this experience myself. I talked about on the episode with Tanya very briefly that there was an episode that we created with a content producer that people really felt was not a good person. And we can argue whether they're a good or bad person or the things that they did, it's that part is not important right now. But we were set to come out with this episode and on Facebook I put out my Friday teaser talking about what was coming out on Monday and there was quite a bit of a backlash. Our community let me know that they didn't appreciate me giving a platform to this content producer who they felt was odious, that expressed opinions and actions they didn't agree with. And here's where... What Tanya said really hit me. We were talking about this very issue, and she said, you know, it's not usually the error that causes the problem. It's the cover-up. It's the reaction to the error. So when I put out this Friday teaser, and my community said, how dare you put this gentleman on your podcast? How dare you give him a platform when he espouses racism and sexism and bias and things that are bad, I could have reacted in one of two ways. I could have gotten angry and rabidly defended myself. And it probably would have gotten worse. I probably would have alienated my community more, and no good would have come of it. Luckily, I had been thinking a lot about this in general, and I choose, when I have these conversations, to explicitly make sure that people know my intentions. Because I've realized that often our actions are flawed. We try our best, but sometimes the things we say or the things we do don't come out the way we thought they would. We have impure actions, we have impure thoughts, but a lot of times our intentions are good. So when we're in the midst of dealing with this issue with the podcast and my community was telling me that they didn't agree with my actions the best i could do is instead of trying to defend my actions i tried to explain my intentions And here's why I think this is important, because by doing that, I didn't negate what they were saying. I didn't deny what they were saying, and I didn't even try to stand up for myself or say I wasn't doing what they thought I was, because I couldn't deny that I had recorded with this person that they didn't agree with. I couldn't deny that I was giving a platform to someone they felt I shouldn't give a platform to, but I could express to them my intentions. And tell them what I intended to do with this guest, what I intended to do with the episode, and why I thought the intentions were good. And as the responses came in, I also decided that I was wrong. And that was really hard <laughs> to decide that my community spoke up on an issue and they told me that they didn't agree with what I was doing And instead of becoming defensive, I looked deeply inside myself and I looked at my intentions and I realized that my intention for the podcast as well as the episode were no longer being filled if I was alienating my audience. So how do we move forward? How do we express difficult opinions? How do we have conversations that are labors of love, how do we talk about these controversial issues without alienating one another? And the best I can tell is that we have to go at it with pure intentions. Our intentions have to be good, because our actions and our words sometimes aren't. So my point of all this is I'm sure there are many of you who've listened to episodes that we've put out here on Earn and Invest, and maybe you haven't agreed with one of my statements. Maybe you haven't agreed with some of the choices on what questions I asked or who I decided to have on the podcast. I think that's going to happen, especially the bigger our community becomes. There are going to be times when you don't agree with me. So my promise to you is that I come at these conversations with good intentions. I intend to be inclusive. I intend to talk about the most difficult of subjects. And I intend to be just. And I intend to fight injustice. That's all I can promise you. And as our community grows, and as the number of episodes increases, I'm sure there are going to be times when you don't agree with me. And so feel free to express that on the Facebook group as the perfect place. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And tell me what you think. And if you don't agree with me, or God forbid, if you think I was offensive, tell me so that I can tell you my intentions and I, as well as this podcast, can grow and learn and we can come together as a community and most importantly we can continue having these difficult conversations, these important conversations. We can continue doing the important work. Because if we can't talk to each other, if we can't communicate, if we can't express our opinions without being afraid that we will be turned off or closed out of the conversation, if we can't express ourselves to each other, everything is lost.
2: I think the new, the new sexy coming out, maybe out of this uh, crisis, may not be the retire early and, and sit on the beach drinking a cocktail, but maybe the new sexy is. Uh, just um, having a stronger financial position so maybe it's maybe it becomes and i I hate to come up with new acronyms but how about financial independence or financial improvement resistant to emergencies or resilient to emergencies and maybe that becomes a new sexy or that that may be or or it's just because i'm getting older and that's that's what seems more important to me these days
4: i was about to say brent i do find that sexy
2: And uh, I don't want to say. Oh wait, you know, maybe I have other things to talk about. But um, Liz, you know the, in terms of home haircuts, last weekend I did. Uh, I did my, our own uh, prison quarantine haircut. That's a good one, Doc. <laughs> my but, my uh, son did son.
1: That's got the yeah. advantage
4: there. My son did it. He shaved me. <laughs> oh, my wife gave me a little help uh, this weekend, and uh, it, and uh, what's good
1: part right oh, yeah. right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can barely see it. It'll grow out. Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You just don't, you can't turn your head on Zoom. As long as you keep straight,
1: you're good. Yeah, I think home haircuts are going to come back in fashion as well. Quite a, quite a lot of DIY. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: No joke. It
0: better come back in fashion or somebody like me, I'm going to have hair over the ears. I'm going to have a mullet in the back. It's going to just, get just really do the doc. long really
1: bad. Just do yeah. the doc
0: haircut
4: for now. It is. You know what? I, it's like the reverse. If I let my hair grow too long, I look more bald. <laughs> so because it gets all bushy here and then it's all like wispy here it looks horrible so the like the shorter my hair is the less bald i look it's it's i don't have very far to go like i'm i'm like 90 percent bald but that
1: 10 you, know? you gotta gotta save the 10 <laughs>
4: yeah no i've come to terms with it i actually i don't mind at all i like that it's just a pain to my son shaves it every few weeks but you know